Well, in our exposition of the Gospel of Matthew, we come to the last seven verses of chapter 26. These verses record for us Peter's denials. Now, let me say even at the outset that these denials are, is, it's a significant event in the Passion Narrative. And I say that because every single one of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all contain this story here. And the question always you should ask in your Bible study is, why are these verses here? And what if these verses weren't there? Because maybe that will help you. If the verses weren't there, then what would we miss? And the fact that these verses are here, what is it that we gain. Because it's interesting these verses would be here because this is not a flattering story. I mean, in fact, it's a, it's a sad story. If you think about it, Jesus invested three years of his life with twelve intimate disciples. These twelve walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, pledged their allegiance to Jesus, and yet not one of them remained faithful to him. They all fell away from following Him on this most crucial of nights. And so, why would Jesus include this story about Peter falling away and forsaking Jesus? I think there are a couple purposes, but here's the one primary one that I want to nail into your heads this morning. Is I think the primary purpose is to make clear that Jesus endured the cross in His own power. He didn't have anybody else supporting Him. None of His disciples were there to help Him. And if anything, actually they were a distraction to Jesus. And this story helps to illustrate that Jesus Christ bore the cross all alone. In the athletic world, there is much discussion about home field advantage. And there's debate about this, but many believe, I would be one of them, that the home team generally plays better at home than on the road. They get to sleep in their own bed at night. You know, they don't have a big, long travel. But on top of that, they have the crowds behind them. And the crowds help to motivate them. I, I think about you know when the, the athlete's lungs are crying for air. And legs are cramping and throat is parched. It's the roar of the crowd that helps the athlete play on, ignoring the screams of his body. And some would argue that even playing at home is worth another player on the field. Now, when Jesus was here upon the cross, He had no home field advantage. He had no disciples cheering Him on. Go, Jesus! Keep going! Be faithful unto death, Jesus! No, Jesus died alone, deserted and abandoned by all of His followers. You know, when Jesus died upon the cross... He should have had home field advantage. I mean, after all, Jerusalem was rightly his own city. In the Old Testament, it says that Jerusalem was a city in which God would dwell. And yet, when Pilate offered to set Jesus free to those who lived in Jerusalem, what did they say? Let him be crucified. And when Pilate said, what wrong has he done? Here, what do you want me to do? And they said, let him be crucified. All the more shouting and perhaps even at a chant. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. It's hardly a friendly home field. In fact, Jesus was on hostile territory. And furthermore, on top of the hostile crowd, his own disciples deserted him. His most 
intimate earthly friends didn't stand with him in his hour of greatest need. And this included Peter, the the most outwardly spoken, loyal of his disciples. The one who said, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not desert you. Well, we can't look at all to a courageous disciple who helped Jesus endure. It wasn't the encouraging word that helped continue him on in obedience to the Father. It was Jesus Christ who accomplished it all by Himself. Nobody else can take any credit for any of our redemption except for Jesus. You know, great works of the world have always been done by many, many people. I think about the pyramids, right? Built huge and big. They weren't built by one person. Thousands of slaves over many, many years built those. Skyscrapers that we have today, great works. But it's taken teams of people with massive machinery over many years. But Jesus did His great work all alone. Nobody supporting Him. Nobody helping Him. This morning, we're going to look in in depth at Peter's denials. And these denials really help show how abandoned Jesus was in this world. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Though our text is the last seven verses, we're going to begin reading in verse 31, because that's really where the story and the context picks up. And then we'll skip ahead to verse 69. Let me read Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written... I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. So let's skip ahead to verse 69 to see Jesus' words come true. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a certain servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a cock crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Before cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, it didn't come as any surprise that his disciples had deserted Jesus. It was written in the Old Testament, right? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And even in the case of Peter, it's interesting that Jesus knew the exact particulars of what would take place before when Peter would deny him. He said, before cock crows... You'll deny me three times. This is exactly what took place when we read that. Right? Peter denied Jesus three times. Then the cock crowed and Jesus faced the cross all alone. I want to look first this morning at the denials. These will be textual. And then I'll look at some lessons that we can learn from these denials. 
the denials, verses 69 to 75, we see Peter sitting outside in the courtyard. We mentioned a few weeks ago that Peter was in the courtyard of the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the religious trial of Jesus was taking place. Now, Caiaphas was the highest political, religious figure in the land. And you might think of his house like the White House. It would have been a very appropriate place for a public gathering to be held. Very appropriate for this trial to take place. You might also know that in the days of Jesus, houses didn't have front lawns and back lawns. They had center courtyards. And if you had a large house, you'd have a a larger center courtyard, which was the case here. Able to hold 70 men from the Sanhedrin, Jesus, and some bystanders looking on, observing the trial. And so Peter, we see here, sitting outside the courtyard, but having an eye kind of looking in, observing the trial from afar, we read that a certain servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. Verse 69. I think what's happening here is similar to an experience that I had this week. Have you ever seen somebody that you recognize but just can't quite put your finger on how you know them? That happened to me this week. I was in uh, Subway purchasing a, a sandwich. And I was in line there telling the sandwich artists what to put on the sandwich and what not to. And... Um, yeah. That's what they're called, I think. Sandwich artists, right? Anyway, I'm, I'm there telling them what to, what to put on. And I kind of glanced back over here and there was an older woman. And I'm like, yeah, I know her. <laughs> and we smile. We exchange look and we kind of smile at each other and kind of, kind of greeted each other a little bit. And then I went back to my sandwich thinking, where have I seen her before? I, I know I've seen her, but I don't know. Where, where is it? Maybe. And I thought she was Elam. I thought she was from Elam Baptist Church. I think, yeah, I think I think that's right. Maybe, you know, but I'm not I'm not exactly sure. And then I looked back again, trying to figure it out again. And she made conversation to me over about three or four people. She said, "Oh, isn't it wonderful weather we're having? Because it was raining. You know, you're thankful for the rain." And I said, "Yeah, it is." All in my mind thinking, you know what? I I I forget who you are. And then I went back and I. Paid my, for my sandwich. I waved on the way out. My, sti- my mind was still in confusion. It was not till I was several blocks down in my car that I said, Oh, I remember. It's not the church. It's the international students outreach that I remember her from. That's right. I even remember her name. I think that's what was happening with the servant girl. Uh, in Luke, we find out that Peter was standing near a fire and kindled in the midst of the courtyard. It's a chilly evening, they're keeping warm, and others were around this fire. And I think the servant girl, in the midst of the chit-chat, was looking at Peter and thinking the same thing. Thinking like, you know, he looks really familiar. And where do I know him from? Is he, does he live in our neighborhood? No, the marketplace? I, the temple. Yeah, I, I think I saw him in the temple. Yeah, that's where it is. You know, I think he was listening to Jesus. In fact, you know what? I think maybe I saw him enter the temple with Jesus. You too were with Jesus, the Galilean, she said. I think that's probably the tone of voice that she said. Not not accusing in, in any way, but just trying to figure out whether that's really who, she, who he was. And Peter, when this question came, it wasn't even a question. It was more of a, a statement. Didn't want to hear this question. 
I mean, Peter was incognito. If he'd have had sunglasses in the day, I think he probably would have been wearing sunglasses trying to, like, hide himself. It was chilly, so maybe he was pulling his cloak up above, you know, his, his face a little bit to keep hidden. He wanted to blend into the background. He wanted to be a wallflower. But now Peter had to deal straight on with his relationship with Jesus. And you need to remember that even right now, at this very moment, the Sanhedrin was attempting to find false witnesses to find guilt with Jesus. Looking for all kinds of witnesses that they could bring to give testimony. And if Peter would come out and say that he was one of his disciples, I believe he would have been dragged into the middle of the court and said, well, give testimony about Jesus. What do you say? And would it come out that Jesus were actually, Peter were actually one of his disciples Peter may well have been crucified along with Jesus. And so I think that Peter is saving his own life by these words. Peter denied having any relationship with Jesus. says, I do not know what you are talking about. It's exactly what Jesus predicted that Peter would do. And notice if you look carefully, the text says that this denial came in the presence of several others. Right? He denied it before them all. That's what the verse says. Apparently, when this... This girl asked the question. There were probably others around the fire who perked up as well and said, with Jesus, a disciple of Jesus? He's, he's the guy over there. He's the guy they're trying to accuse. Is this, could this be? I thought they all fled. Do we have one of his disciples here? And maybe doing, they would have brought him in. But Peter denied his connection with Jesus before them all. In so doing, he lied. Of course, Peter knew Jesus. He was one of the first disciples called. Remember, he was fishing in Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus called him, come follow me. He dropped his nets and followed Jesus. And for three years, he was with Jesus, seeing him perform many, many miracles, even including the healing of his mother-in-law. You can't forget that. For better, for worse, right? Peter was one of his three closest disciples. I mean, of anybody who went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, it was Jesus. It was Peter and James and John. If they need to see the girl raised, Jairus' daughter raised from the dead, it was Peter and James and John. If they need to come closer with him to pray, it was Peter and James and John. He knew Jesus, but he denied all this. And in so doing, he denied the very one he promised never to deny. Strike one. Well, after this, we find Peter on the move. He knew those around the fire were leading on to him and suspecting him. Maybe they would have questioned him about these things. It would have been difficult for G- for Peter to make up this this story about things. I mean, I can just imagine this conversation that goes on. So you aren't one of his disciples, okay? Well, what do you do for a living? He's been a a missionary for three years. He would say, "Well, I'm I'm a, I'm a fisherman." Oh yeah, here in Jerusalem. There's no lake in Jerusalem. Where are you from? Galilee. Oh, you're from Galilee, huh? Well. Galilee is a pretty small place. Did you know Jesus? No, I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know him. But I mean, you think about a fisherman on Galilee. I, I heard that some of his disciples even were fishermen, and, and the, the fishermen in Galilee. I mean, that's, you probably run across. Do you know any of those disciples? And well, maybe a little bit. He'd have to start lying through his teeth, and it would have been very difficult for him to cover up his knowledge of Jesus. And so he chose the easier route, just to split. Say, we're done with that. He went outside, as it says in verse 71, to the gateway. Now, the gateway was the entrance into the court. So, he's kind of like around the doorway. You know, he's hanging around by the, by the door out there, just kind of looking and seeing how things are. Further away from the trial. 
I think he did so, so as to remove himself from more of the confrontations. And here we see another servant girl. Now, we don't know how old these servant girls were. I'm suspecting they were young. 13, 14, 16. Here's bold Peter then being scared of these servant girls. A little bit like a big elephant being scared by a mouse. That's what's being taken place here. Again, confronted how this servant girl recognized Peter. We don't know. This is a bit more direct this time. She said in verse 71, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter did the same thing. He denied it and said, I don't know the man. Yet this time, it's interesting, with each different denial, it gets bigger and stronger every time. Verse 72 says that he swore to them with an oath. He denied it with an oath. In other words, Peter may have said something like this. I don't know the man. I'm serious. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. God is my witness. I do not know the man. Strike two. And again, the scene repeats itself in verse 73. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, so now it's not a servant girl, it's other bystanders. You know, other people may be getting on to Peter and said, surely you, you too are one of them for the way you talk gives them away. Now, Matthew said this happened a little bit later. Luke's more specific. This happened an hour later. So don't think about these denials. It's happening just boom, boom, boom without him thinking about it. You know, running, oh, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And like, oh, I denied him three times. This is like an hour has taken place. Gives him much time to think about it. Gives him much time to think about what he said. How he lied and been unfaithful to his previous promises. But I suspect suspect that Peter was one who just talked and talked and talked. Maybe didn't spend much time thinking about these things. But it was here for an hour. I think he was chit-chatting with those around him. And the manner of his speech gave him away. Across the country, we have different accents, right? Those in New York have a different accent than those do in Chicago. Different than those in Alabama as opposed to California, where my wife would contend they speak correctly. It's easy to recognize a foreigner, a different part of the country, and it's easy for these people in Jerusalem to recognize someone with a Galilean accent. And they said, your talk gives you away. That's what what they told Peter. And again, Peter denies having any relationship with Peter, and it comes strong. It's as strong as he could do. It says in verse 74, he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. He's trying to make himself as believable as possible. Cursing, swearing, Raising his voice, turning red in the face. Just, you know, I've heard preachers sometimes, you know, in, the, in their notes, when they have a, a point that's really debatable, if they shout and they pound really hard, then no one will doubt him. And so also Peter here, lying through his teeth, he's laughing, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. May curses be upon my house if I don't tell the truth. I do not know the man. Strike three. And there was no joy in Jerusalem because the mighty Peter had struck out. Then we read those infinite words here in verse 74. Immediately, the cock crowed. This is just like Jesus had predicted in verse 34. And in fact, it was the very crowing of the cock that brought into Peter's minds the words of Jesus. Before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. Luke tells us at this point 
that Jesus was in the middle of his trial and he looked back at Peter. So here, you mean, imagine this trial, commotions going on, these things, he's talking, this thing's going on. Jesus, kr, kr, kr! cock crows. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. Turned and looked. They made eye contact. And you know what? Peter felt all alone as well. He went out, verse 75 says, and wept bitterly. Out of the courtyard, out of the house of Caiaphas, away from the crowds, I suspect he found a place all alone and bawled his eyes out. He thought about the evil of his deeds. He'd abandoned Jesus. He'd been unfaithful to his promises. He left Jesus alone and now he himself was all alone. Now, you know, this would be a mighty sad story if we didn't know how things turned out. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus gathering His disciples together and instructing them to go and make disciples of all the nations. And these eleven disciples included Peter. And these eleven disciples included all of them who fell away. And though they all fell away from Jesus, they were all later restored into the work of spreading the Gospel throughout the world. In fact, Peter became the first great Christian evangelist. He became the rock of the church that Christ said that he would be. And I believe it's really at this point that I believe we get a secondary purpose of these words. The primary purpose is to, to show that Christ, when he was upon the cross, faced it all alone. But the secondary purpose is that Peter is an example for us. He is a great encouragement to those who are discouraged with their sin. Because we can learn much about our own sin and our own restoration before the Lord by learning from Peter. And so, I want to transition to my second point. Let's look at some lessons. Seen the denials, how Jesus was forsaken. Now, look at some lessons that teaches us about our sin. Here's lesson number one. No sin is too big to be forgiven. If anyone had reason to quit, it was Peter. He could easily have said, it's no use, it's over, it's done, I've denied Jesus, I've forsaken Him, surely He'll never take me back. But over the next few days, Jesus was raised from the dead. When Peter heard the news, he was excited and he ran into the tomb and just saw the linen cloth just lying there. And it says in John chapter 20, verse 8, that Peter believed. And here's the key, really to the restoration of Peter, that, by the way, next week we'll find isn't true of Judas. Peter pursued Jesus. And in pursuing Him, he found himself restored and forgiven. Now, to be sure, Peter's sin was great. I mean, he had a great opportunity to make a good confession before men like Jesus did before Pilate. He could stand and say, I am a follower of Jesus. He could have been like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not going to bow to your idol because I'm a follower of the Lord Most High. He could have done that. Been a great example of great boldness. Perhaps God would have delivered him like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But in the end, he merely denied God instead. As great as his sin was, Though his repentance was equally as great. And Jesus willingly received him back again. This is Jesus. Stands with open arms, willing to embrace all who repent of their sins and follow him. 
all who would bow the knee to His sovereignty, He'll receive. I mean, Jesus is the Father who scans the horizon for the sinful prodigal son to return and then rejoices when He does. And down through the ages, many of God's people have committed great sin and have found forgiveness. I think about Moses. You know, Moses was a murderer. And yet he found forgiveness. David was also a murderer and an adulterer while being king, while being selected by God, while being on the top of the world in many ways. He sinned. But he also found forgiveness. Manasseh, are you familiar with him? One of my favorite kings of the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 33. He was an idol worshiper. Led Israel into great sin for 55 years. He found forgiveness. Nebuchadnezzar, the one who demanded that he be worshipped as God, killing those who would refuse, putting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire and wanting to kill them. He was humbled by the Lord and found forgiveness. During the days of Jesus, there were scores of prostitutes and adulteresses forgiven. Even greedy tax collectors found forgiveness, one of whom was Matthew, who wrote this great gospel that we have been studying. Matthew wasn't just this upright guy with a good background. He was a traitor to the nation of Israel. And yet he found forgiveness. Thieves dying on the cross for their sins found forgiveness. Paul described himself as a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church and a violent aggressor. Paul found forgiveness. In the early church, many wicked people found forgiveness. 1 Corinthians describes those people in Corinth. The church in Corinth was composed of former fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate people and homosexuals and thieves and covetous people and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. This is a list of the people in Corinth who committed great sins and yet found forgiveness in Christ. And down through church history, there have always been many converts who lived absolutely wicked and rebellious lives. The Lord opened their eyes to see the glories of the cross. Just a couple come to my mind. Augustine was about as immoral a man as they come. Yet he became an early church, church father. John Newton, a wicked slave trader, blasphemer, till he was converted. And many others down through the centuries. Yeah, and maybe you're here today having forsook the Lord. Thinking your sin's too great to be forgiven. Maybe you know somebody who thinks like that. Maybe a family member. Or maybe a neighbor who's deep into sin. And maybe you know the Lord, but have gone astray pursuing your own lust. Even this week or this month or a season. Maybe your heart has been cold and indifferent to Christ. Maybe you haven't been verbal at work about your love to Him. Maybe you've been like Jesus and like Peter and, and maybe like denying Jesus a little bit at work. Going with the crowd. Not standing bold. The story of Jesus really comes as a hopeful story for us all. In fact, I believe that His life does encourage us greatly. I mean, if Peter can sin in this way and be restored, so can we. In fact, I remember when David sinned with Bathsheba. In fact, we read it in our prayer time this morning. Psalm 51. David said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors thy ways 
and sinners will be converted to thee. See, when Peter was restored, he became an instrument used by the Lord to draw many people to himself. On the day of Pentecost, Pentecost, 3,000 people converted because the sinner restored became the mouthpiece of saving grace. Peter wrote two letters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, which we have in our Bibles. And you know what? They have been printed and read by billions of people. Peter, forgiven, restored, becoming a great mouthpiece for God. Indeed, he taught transgressors the way of the Lord. Peter's denials really is a story of hope. The story of hope is this. It's no sin is too big to be forgiven. But also with these lessons, there comes a warning. There's great hope, but there's also a warning as well. And the warning is this, lesson number two. No sin is too small to be ignored. No sin is too small to be ignored. Maybe you've asked yourself this question about Peter like I did this week. How could Peter have denied the Lord like this? I mean, he and Jesus were so close. And he was so bold. How did it happen? Well, if you look at Matthew's account, you'll find several clues along the way that perhaps you could see Peter's being prepared for a fall. He's being prepared for a fall. And back in hindsight now, we can look and we say, Aha, now I know. Now I see. See, we sin never happens in a vacuum. You show me a man who falls to immorality, and I'll show you a man who committed many other sins on the way to committing that particular sin. You show me a married couple who divorces, and I'll show you a bunch of sins which led to their separation. You show me a man who commits perjury, and I'll show you a man trying to cover up a multitude of sins. That's how sin works, right? We sin a little bit. We get away with it. Feels good. We sin a little bit more. 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 And then finally, some catastrophic sin is committed. We wonder now, now how did that happen? And we look back and we think, I don't know how that happened. Why did I do that? And there, sadly, there are many who don't wake up until they feel the consequence of larger sins. Right. So when the the marriage starts falling apart, when the divorce word is used for the first time, people go, Whoa, where'd that come from? Well, you know what? There are many things along the way where that came from. The answer is they happen slowly by making poor choices, by making sinful choices along the way. Right? As Solomon says, little foxes that ruin the vineyard. With Peter, it's no different. He took many steps to get to his fall. His first step was that of overconfidence. Right? Turn back to verse 33. Peter said, Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Verse 35, even after, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter's overconfident. He didn't know the frailty of his own flesh. He didn't realize how little was his faith. He was proud, puffed up, arrogant, boastful, confident. As Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction. And this proverb was true in Peter's life. He was confident that he would stand. As I say, church family, regarding your sin, don't be overconfident that you won't fall. See, it's the one who thinks he stands who's in special danger of falling. 
And if you're facing temptation and banking on the fact that you'll be able to endure it, you need to take heed lest you fall. You need to know where you're weak because Satan certainly knows where you're weak. And your flesh certainly knows where you are weak. And so don't be so overconfident to assure yourself that you are strong enough to overcome. That is a sure plan for failure. It really is. Well, let's look at the second step that Peter took. Overconfidence was the first one. <clears throat> second one, lack of prayer. Remember what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane? Gethsemane. Jesus knew that He was about to suffer mightily upon the cross and He knew the danger approaching His soul and so He did the only thing that He could do. What did He do? He prayed to the Father. But Peter was in the garden clueless. When Jesus told him to watch and pray, Peter snoozed and slept. Now, you might be thinking, but you know, Peter didn't really realize the gravity of the hour. I mean, certainly if Peter knew the temptations that would come upon him and the difficulties that he would face... I mean, certainly he would have been one who prayed. I say, oh, you give him too much credit. Before the garden, Jesus told Peter, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, if anything should have arrested Peter's attention, it should have been this. Satan himself demanding permission, seeking permission to sift Peter like wheat. You ever seen boxers come toe-to-toe with each other, face-to-face before the fight? You know, the referee is there explaining the rules to them, and they just got there, they're staring down the other, the other guy. Or maybe in a press conference, even they, they taunt each other. I'm going to flatten your face like a pancake, they say. They say, when I'm through with you, you'll be licking the ground. I made these up, okay? But I think that they are probably pretty pretty good. I'm going to punch your nose right through your face to be on the other side of your head. When Satan was doing this with Peter, it wasn't, Peter, I'm going to sift you like wheat. Take you, slice you up, and put you in your place. You know, Peter didn't pray. Come from, comes from his overconfidence, right? The next step is, well, I'm overconfident. I don't need to pray. So he doesn't pray. He slept in his hour of greatest need. And regarding your sin, church family, you need to devote yourself to prayer. How about this? Have you ever tried in the morning sometime some particular besetting sin that troubles you to get on your knees and pray, God, here's the sin. I know that I'm tempted to that sin. Would you please keep me from it today? You ever done that before? I know I have, and it's been amazing how it's not a problem. Because praying is important to overcoming temptation. Well, the third step that Peter took, not only was he overconfident, not only did he lack prayer, but I'm calling this distance from Jesus. I mean, look at verse 58. It says, Peter was following Jesus at a distance. I think and believe that it would have been entirely different for Peter had he stayed right close to Jesus the entire way. When Jesus walked down and up the Kidron Valley, if Peter would have stayed right close to Jesus, as close as the guards would have led him, walked you know right around the cities of Jerusalem in its narrow, narrow 
alleys, been right as close as he could, set himself right as close to Jesus as they would allow him. I think it would have been a lot more difficult for Peter to have denied Jesus. Walked right into the middle of the trial. And at some point they would have noticed, now, who, who's this guy who keeps following this around? His close proximity to Jesus would have made it easy when asked, right, what are you doing here? He could have easily said, I'm here because I'm a follower of Jesus. Where he goes, I go. It may have cost him his life, but it would have prevented his sin. And the principle for us really is the same. When you are close to Jesus, it is more difficult for you to sin. But drift from your Bible reading. Drift from your praying. Drift from your Christian influence in your mind, be that radio or books. Drift from the fellowship of the church. Drift from church attendance. And you'll find that your desires for God aren't quite as strong as they once were. And then on the flip side, read your magazines. Watch your television shows. Pursue your worldly pleasures. And you will easily forget the fight of faith that you're supposed to be fighting. That's exactly what Peter did. He drifted from Jesus, spent time apart from Him, kind of looked from a distance, spent his time with the godless people around the fire pit. And I just say, spend your time with the world and your life will look different than it should you will be open to a multitude of sins. So I say learn from Peter. Learn these two big lessons and learn them well. No sin is too big to be forgiven. And secondly, learn that no sin is too small to be ignored. We might walk in holiness and purity. Well, let's pray together. Oh God, I would pray that we would see these two lessons come true in in our lives. That we would see Peter denying Jesus and realize first of all that Jesus stood alone. He was forsaken and abandoned and endured it all alone. How glorious that makes the cross seem and would pray that we would look to the cross in that manner. And I pray, O Lord, also that we would realize the great example and the great model that Peter is for us. Great sins can be forgiven and restored. And yet also, little sins ought not to be ignored. For little sins lead to little bigger ones. Little bigger sins lead to little bigger ones. And bigger and bigger until we fall. The child growing up in the Christian home doesn't become an atheist overnight. Well, there's steps along the way. Doubts and comments and denials. And So, Lord, I pray for us that we as a church would be very sensitive to, uh, to, to our sin. That we might realize of how susceptible we are to sin and how much we need Your righteousness how much we need Your help. And so I pray that we would not be confident too much. I pray that we would pray unto You and may we keep close to Jesus that our lives would be wholly pleasing to You.
pray in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.